Here's Pastor Chris. Oh, God. Oh, my gosh. Well, hey, good morning, those of you uh, following along online. Um, but, hey, before we get in, Pastor Tim, with a lovely introduction, derails any kind of composure I have. Yeah. But before we dive into uh, Scripture and Pastor Tim shares from the Word, as we've been preparing and studying together and discussing, there are just a couple of things that we thought would be really beneficial for us to be able to help understand as we walk into this new sermon series that we're walking, walking through. So last week, Pastor Tim mentioned that uh, we're starting and we're going to go through until we finish um, this series, The Upside Down Kingdom, and we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. And so just in case you're wondering, like, Upside Down Kingdom does, I don't, I don't get that. The picture is that this kingdom that Jesus is building is totally contrary to any kind of kingdom that we would build in our own human nature. And so where the world would say, do this, Jesus is saying, nah, actually, this is the way to life. And so we want to pursue Jesus' kingdom, which is totally contrary to what this world is putting forth. And so with that, that kind of really leads into where we're going with the Sermon on the Mount. You can't help but understand the Sermon on the Mount. You need to understand the background a little bit before we can understand it. And so the people in which Jesus is preaching this sermon to, this is a primarily Jewish audience. And so as we are sitting there trying to talk and discuss and pray together, one of the things we noticed was that there's this huge gap between where they were this Jewish audience, and their belief of God, their morality, how they viewed the world, how they view other people, and the way that we do here today reading it. And so in order for us to be able to understand and pull out what Jesus is truly saying from it, we kind of need to understand what they were carrying in and what they understood. And so the thing that is really crazy, and you may not have thought about this because I haven't really thought about this and I'm not saying that means anything, but this was new to me, all right? I'm not anything special. This is just new to me, all right? But the Sermon on the Mount, it has the, this huge backdrop of the law of God. You can't necessarily understand, you can't pull anything out of the Sermon on the Mount without fully understanding at least a little bit about the law of God. And so when we think of the law of God, we think of the Ten Commandments, right? And so how, how, good are we, how good are we at remembering all 10 of those? Yeah. Right? If we, if we took a pop quiz today, how many of you are very confident you'd get all, all 10? Yeah, me neither. All right, all right. It, it, that's kind of the point a little bit we're getting there. But, um, but those 10 commandments, they don't, they're not the whole representation of this law, this morality that every Jewish person would have been carrying with them listening to Jesus. They would have been very familiar with the first five books of our Bible, which the first five books of our Bible is called the Torah. And the Torah, it literally means the law. And so they would have been carrying uh, with them all of the teachings and all of the commandments in the Torah with them. And they would have been understanding as Jesus is saying these things, they're like, wait, I thought this is what it was. And Jesus is actually taking it further. And so as you understand a little bit, and as I was kind of reading and thinking about this, there's some debate in Jewish scholarship about how many commandments and laws there actually are within the Torah. And there's, it, it's not that big of a difference, but there's somewhere between 611 and 613. 
611 and 613, and we can't get 10 of them, right? And so this would have carried with it civil laws. It would have carried with it ceremonial laws. It would have uh, carried with it moral laws, you know, all these different types of things. But still, there's this whole backdrop of these things in which the Jewish audience would have been carrying with them to say, hey, I, I have this understanding of the law that I need to do these things in order to be able to have this connection with God. And what we're going to see throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that that's not at all the purpose of the law. Jesus says, and Pastor Tim's going to read this passage for us in just a couple minutes, but Jesus says that I haven't come to get rid of the law, which is the first five books, or the prophets, which is the rest of the Old Testament. He says, I haven't come to get rid of those things, but I've come to fulfill them. And so the purpose of the law is for us to be able to see God's wisdom, right? There's a lot of things that if, we're, if I'm going to make rules, I'm going to do things that are very selfishly oriented. I'm going to do things so that whatever you do benefits me. And that's what we see within morality now today, right? We're just making laws and things that just benefit whatever we fancy for the day. But God's law, actually there is wisdom and protection there. But if you understand that there's 613 the purpose of them isn't so that we get all 613 right so that God can approve, approve of us. But the point is so that we could be able to see that we're fallen, that we can't, we can't obtain all of this. And so there must be something different. And so that's what Jesus steps in and he says, hey, if you embrace my way of life, I will give you a new heart and you will be able to fulfill these things, not out of duty, not out of making God like you because you do all of these but it's out of love and joy and devotion to our king that we now get to set up and walk in these ways. So I want us to be able to kind of carry that with us. Can we do that together as we walk through this these next couple months, rest of the year, to be able to carry with us that, man, there's this huge weight that could be associated with the law. But Christ says, man, I've come to fulfill that for you, and now I'm inviting you to be able to see how you can actually live in my guidance and wisdom, not to make God love us, but as a reflection of our love for God. So Pastor Tim, come lead us. And I love, it's been so cool for us to just study together. And uh, when we were studying, he just, you know, Chris just dropped that 613 on me, and I was like, whoa. If I've ever heard that, I forgot it. But I was still overwhelmed. 613. Man, then add chapter 5, 6, and 7 on top of that, man, I'm done. You get what I'm saying? Mm. How can we live up to that? But that's the whole point. Yeah. We can't. Yeah. That's, that's what God is constantly trying to get across to us. Mm. No. Remember last week when we were talking about Jeremiah? Jeremiah said, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Lord our righteousness, let's praise his name. His mercy endures forever. And this morning as we're talking, as we're going to spend the next several months just making our way through. And what I love is what uh, Pastor Chris has helped us set the stage for this morning is we're going to be breaking down Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we've never done this before. I've never, and I don't know if you've maybe been a part, if you've been a part of something where they've done this, you need to clue us in and help us out a little bit. Okay. But the Ten Commandments, Come out of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 if you look. Direct correspondence, because that was the very foundation 
for Jesus speaking. Remember last week we talked about that level of preparation, that level yeah. of training? And so we're going to see that as we study together. So this morning, look at Matthew chapter 4. Thank you. That was awesome. I love that. Sorry to be a distraction. You just fired me up, so I expressed it over there. And uh, someday you'll get used to me. My kids are. Well, they're trying. <laughs> Matthew chapter 4, let's read together. i got to get back over here. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. I'm reading in New King James this morning. Follow along with me. We're going to read through chapter 5 and verse 2. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew's brother. Now notice there he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, hanging out on the shoreline. Andrew's brother, casting the net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Man, I love this. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Much better men than me. I would be like, nah, I'll catch you later. And then I've been like, uh-oh, and I'd be running after him. Sorry, sorry, I'm coming. Some of you can relate to that. Pastor Tim, you really feel that way? No, I'm just being honest. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father. Mending their nets, he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. What a great example for us. And Jesus went all about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all of Syria, same Syria, same Syria as today. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he had seated his disciples, came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them. Now jump over to chapter 5. Let's read verse 17. Pastor Chris mentioned these verses. Let's read 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men, so shall he be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be talking about culture and setting surrounding Jesus' sermon. We're going to be talking about the setting and the culture because I think it's super important for us to look at some details because even already this morning, I just read verse 20, and some of you already see verse 20 <clears throat> through different eyes simply because of what Pastor Chris shared with us just a few minutes ago. Unless your righteousness exceeds, unless it exceeds this 613 mark, whoa, 
This is impossible. We're kind of thick-headed as humans. That's what God's trying to teach us. It's not about you earning. It's about what I've done. It's about what I long for you. You need to... You need to pursue me, but you need to release trying to gain something on your own. This is in preparation of this coming Sunday, um, Easter. Oh, my word, I'm so excited about us being able to celebrate and share together. Um, And so I think it's important for Easter. This is Palm Sunday. And I want us to focus on the setting and the culture because it's going to be super important. And honestly, I'm just going to tell you, I hope that it's super important for some of you from this Sunday moving forward for the rest of your days. That's my desire, is that you're going to see and understand some details, and you're going to see and understand something that we just kind of, and we're just kind of doing a simplistic overview. I'm going to give you some stuff. We're not, we're not going to be going through like 18 different verses this morning, but I'm hoping that this morning is going to propel or catapult some of you to doing what we talked about last week, that you are going to genuinely commit yourself to being like our Lord and Savior, our King, who prepared himself and trained way more than what maybe we've ever considered, that that's what he wants for us. He wants us to draw close to the heart of God. So as we're doing this, I think it's super important that we understand some things. And I I just want to mention this as we get started, that um, storytelling is awesome. Now, some of you grew up storytelling, not lying. I'm not talking about lying. I'm not talking about, oh, you were storytelling. No, I'm talking about like, Storytelling. Judy, you want to help me? No? Okay. All right. I just don't want to miss an opportunity. You look like you were right on the edge of your seat there. Okay. So, hey, Jeff, you're next. I haven't forgot about you. <laughs> right. So, what I'm saying is, have you ever been around somebody that is, a, you know, they're trying to tell a story? But they give you no setting, they give you no backdrop, they leave out details, and so they tell their story with passion and enthusiasm, you're like, you give them the courtesy laugh. (laughs) Okay, when are we eating? (laughs) Come on, let's just be honest. We all kind of do that. Versus, everybody look over there, you stand, I don't know if you can all see him. Derek Broomball, raise your hand. No, that was a nod, that wasn't a hand. Okay, that's it, that's all I got out of him, Okay. So like Derek, I don't know, how many of you have ever had like an overwhelming, full-blown, like 25-minute conversation with Derek? Raise your hand. Okay, that's what I thought. It's the minimum amount in here, okay? All right? Because Derek, by nature, is a really quiet guy. But when you get him in the right setting, you get him in the right situation, and he starts opening up, and especially what I love to see him tell stories, he's a great storyteller because he fishes. I mean, I'm just going to leave it at that, but I'm just saying that... He's a, he's a grand fisherman. He does amazing. But what I love about Derek is he gives me all the details. He tells, and what I really love is when he's telling a funny story, he's like me. He starts laughing while he's telling you the story. So he's giving me all the details and all the backdrop, and then he's like, <laughs> you know, he's laughing. Hey, Rachel, did I do good? Okay, that was good. So anyway, he's laughing while he's telling the story. So it's like when he's telling me these fishing stories, it's building for me. And I'm so, because he's, he's feeling it. I feel like I'm on the boat. I got an idea of the seashore, what the, is underneath the water and what kind of lure he's using, even though he has explained it to me 12 times because I still don't understand what he's saying. But he's telling me, you know, the kind of pole and all this. So when we get to it, like I'm right along with him because he's not leaving out the details. Please hear me. The details 
in the Bible are the difficult study. It takes more work. But what I'm hoping that we're going to do is I'm going to show you that the, the, the information that I've gotten this morning, because I think it's super important that you understand the setting and the culture and some of the background, because it's a game changer when you can understand the context, a little bit more of the context of what's going on and really what's taking place, because it illuminates your eyes and you go, oh, that makes sense. But you don't get this. Like, I'm telling you right now, what I'm gonna, about to share, I've probably gotten from 12, 15 different sources. So it's the hard work. I didn't open up one book or I didn't click on one website and go, oh man, that's awesome. I can just print that and preach it. Yeah. No. So let me just, let me just start by a couple things. We're going to run through some detail. And please bear with me the, the, this morning. But I need to start this by saying that I'm fairly certain, just hang with me. I'm not trying to be offensive because I know some of you, your grandmother had a picture hanging in, your, in her house when you went over there but I'm fairly certain that Jesus was not blonde-haired, blue-eyed. I know some of you, you're staring at me because you're like, dude. (laughs) He was born in the Middle East, and he was of Jewish descent. Do a little research, look at that. He was of the household and lineage of King David. I believe Jesus was a dark-skinned man. Um, I don't have a deep DNA discussion this morning, but... If you look into fair traits versus dark traits and which ones come from which, things will make more sense to you. Let me go over, let me begin with, let me give you some knots and some no's. So I'm going to start out with knots and no's. Jesus was not American or of English descent, which means he did not speak English. Now, some of you, I understand a lot of the movies you've watched and the disciples following, what I, what I get a kick out of is like, you know, we've got this English, I mean, we've got this American production and then when Jesus goes to speak, he's like, you need to follow me and I'll make you fishes of men. I'm always like, okay, so he came to America through England. Okay, I get that. But Jesus didn't speak English. He was not married, he was single. There's been some perverted presentation of sexual nature that is ungodly and blasphemous to our great God and King, but Jesus was single, and he was committed to his father. And at this point, he was not a child. I said last week he was a man between 28 and 30 years of age. I want to just mention to you as we're reading, as we're going to be going through these chapters for several weeks, I just want to remind you of a couple of things. There was no electricity which means no sound system, no ability to project the voice, no technology to save his teachings, and no large screen. No large screen projection system for comfortable viewing in the privacy of a building or a home. Just a note, there was no motorized transportation. No mopeds, no electric skateboards, okay? With that said, let me just go into the political setting. I want to just lay this down because I think it's so important, and I just want, I just want to encourage you because I know that some of you, as we go through these things, as we talk about these details, that some of you, certain things are going to begin to click with you even as we're doing this, not even referencing the Sermon on the Mount or Jesus teaching on the mountainside, just because you're going to hear certain things and other biblical characters are going to come to your mind, you're going to be like, oh, 
Here's the political setting. The region of Galilee was ruled by a man named Herod Antipas, who was one of three ruling sons of Herod the Great. If you read the Bible, you're going to know who Herod the Great was. Herod Antipas um, was referred to as the King of Galilee. His capital city was located about five miles northwest of a town that we know as Nazareth. So the king and his capital city was only five miles northwest of Nazareth. Most of us remember um, Herod Antipas as the ruler who took the life of John the Baptist. He executed John the Baptist. Now, I want you to just think about this for a minute as we're talking about the political setting. The Hebrew people were being occupied by the Romans. The Jewish people were not an independent, free nation, but they were under the rule of Roman government, and their rules, the Roman rules, were enforced by the Roman military. See, do you get this sense of occupation? They were living, but they were, they were occupied by the Roman government. The Jewish people at that time were given freedom to express themselves, but there were limits established on the scope of what they could do. They had their own court system, but the overseers of the court did not have the authority to sentence someone to death. So they had limitations in what that they could give out. They could put people in jail. They could find people. They could do things. There could be people were actually put into slaves if you couldn't pay your bills. So they took care of all that stuff. But a Roman ruler was responsible for the pronouncement of death. The people were expected to pay tribute to the ruling Romans by paying taxes. So they were paying taxes to support this occupied ruling group. The Jewish people lived under heavy taxation. And I just want to mention this if you haven't studied. The one of the reasons why it talks about tax collectors is typically what the Romans would do is that they would enlist Jewish individuals, they would enlist Hebrews to be their tax collectors. And the way that the tax collectors got paid is they would extort people or they would add a taxation on top of what the Romans wanted out of the people. And so that's why they were in charge. And here's the reality. It wasn't like a normal accountant or somebody that's overseeing the situation. They had the full force of the Roman government backing up whatever amount they extended. Are you tracking with me? So you can see how that when somebody said that you're a tax collector, you wouldn't be like, that's my buddy. He dug me for twice what I should have. See what I'm saying? Factions within the Jewish community did not like, please hear me when I say this, they did not like or support Roman rule. Let me give you two, two, two people. I want to mention two sects as both of these groups fought for nationalism and they rebelled against Roman occupation. You've heard, most of you have heard this word, the zealots. This nationalist group, they pushed back, and they expected, now they, they pushed back, they fought back against the Roman rule, but they were expecting the Messiah to lead the nation in military conquest of the Romans to establish an independent nation. Does a zealot come to your mind? One of the apostles, Simon, the zealot. The second group, the Sicarii. This nationalist group was even more committed in their tactics. Some believe that the Sicarii functioned as a terrorist group toward Romans and Roman sympathizers. 
Certain people say that this is the first known recorded terrorist group because of the Sakari were took it to a different level and they were super committed. This, I'm just trying to give you a background of what was going on politically. Let's talk about the language. The language of the day, obviously we've established it was not English. The predominant language at the time, and for various reasons which I'm not going to discuss today, um, the primary language of the region was Aramaic. Aramaic is very similar to Hebrew and has portions of Hebrew. It's part of the Hebrew, but there were different accents to Aramaic, just like there are accents in English. Now, I found that out when I moved from Texas and I went to New York. Um, Bob Kemp earlier scolded me about my New York accent and said that it was terrible, so I won't do that. You know, again, this morning I got scolded already. But when I went to New York and I started speaking, I didn't realize that I was a natural comedian just by my accent because people would just start laughing. Like, where are you from? Well, I didn't say, they didn't say it that way. I said, just said it that way. And it was the same way with Aramaic. So the Galileans, there was actually a Galilean accent within the Aramaic speaking. And if you went to Jerusalem, then there was a Jerusalem accent within the Aramaic language. So it's the same way, it's the same way that we have today. Um, I just want to mention to you that Jesus probably spoke, confidently I say, probably he spoke three different languages. He spoke Aramaic, spoke Hebrew, and he spoke Greek. That's impressive. Some of you are linguists in here and you speak more than one language. I'm always impressed with somebody when I find out, especially when they can speak any dialect from the Middle East. I'm just like, whoa, that's cool. I still am struggling with English, so I give homage to anybody that can go past English, okay? Some of you are sitting here, you know who I'm talking about. Thank you for your learning. But I want you to just see, the reason I mention this is we take certain things for granted. And I, I mentioned it last week, but it's not like because he was the son of God, he just like woke up one morning and be like, hey, man, I, I'm a linguist now. Now, we see that he committed himself to learning and growing. He experienced training, education. He spoke three different languages. That's something that we need to focus on. Let me give you some general setting information. The population of Palestine at this time was probably about five to 600,000 people. Of this five to 600,000 people in this region, now it's important that we, may not seem like that big a deal, but think about this. Of that five to 6,000 Six, sorry, five to six hundred thousand. Five to six hundred thousand. Eighteen thousand of that population were clergy, priests, or Levites. Sometimes we get this idea that when Jesus walked out speaking, that he just immediately was like, ah, and everybody walked by like, oh, I want to follow him. There were a lot of teachers, there were a lot of rabbis, there were there was a lot of teaching. It wasn't uncommon. So Jesus, when he first started, it was how God set him apart that made him a different voice than the other 18,000. Think about that. Jewish people typically ate two meals a day, and bread was the main food. Some of you, you have five meal times, okay? You would struggle to get acclimated to this culture. Two meals. And the way that they would do it is a light mid-morning meal that we would consider breakfast, but it was very light. 
And then the dinner meal was more substantial, but fish was the common staple. That's part of the reason why you see uh, about the Sea of Galilee and fishermen, because they ate more fish than anything, because red meat, red meat was for special occasions and celebrations. So this group of people at the time, it wasn't like they're coming home like, "Mm, oh, got another cow. No, that was for like huge celebrations. They were eating fish. Let me talk real quick about the audience. We obviously see that it was a large group of people. It's probably a cross-section of all different ages and all walks of life. Now, I just want to remind you that during this time, think about this. Don't take this for granted. Families educated their children themselves within the household, and the religious leaders assisted with the education as well. So the kids weren't being sent off to a public education center. The parents educated. The parents trained. That's why typically if you were a carpenter, you taught your children how to be a carpenter. If you did sewing and you made garments, you taught your family, and then you learned along the way. You learned languages and stuff. Let's talk about the location. It's an elevated mountainside area located near the Sea of Galilee. Now, when you read the Bible, you're also going to see Lake uh, Gennesaret mentioned. Lake Gennesaret and the Sea of Galilee are the same body of water, just uh, different terms referred to. Probably a northwest mountainside. So you have the Sea of Galilee, probably northwest location. And part of that is because it appears that Jesus came from Capernaum and taught this large group of people, and then he returned to the city of Capernaum when he got done. Now, this is what I really want some of you, some of you for the first time, you may put some pieces together, so I want you to listen. Let's talk about the religion of the day. Judaism was to be the primary religion of the Jewish people, but if you read the Old Testament, you're going to see that the Jewish people have always struggled to keep it pure and keep it about faith, to keep it about Yahweh, Elohim. El Shaddai. Because wherever they lived, they were influenced by these other cultures. And just like what it says in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, that we need to be separated. We don't need to be pressed into the mold of the world around us. God understands that. That's why he says you got to be careful. And that the Israelites, the Hebrews, were constantly struggling. And so you read, how can this group of people that believe in Judaism actually be offering their children on this multi, on this Um, altar to Baal where they're actually being burned to death as a sacrifice because they had embraced certain aspects of other cultures while we were there. But it was Judaism. Jesus was raised in Judaism and learned the old covenant law. So think of it this way. Jesus was raised in Judaism. He learned the law. He learned, and you, you understand from what Pastor Chris said earlier, the extent of that, that Jesus understood it. Matter of fact, he was interpreting. He was challenging. He was asking questions about it. And if you read, he did that at 12 years old. Look at Luke. Look at Luke. First couple of chapters. He did that at 12 years old. He was blowing their minds because of things he was asking. And because of that, and I'm not saying... Um, anything other than to be an encouragement, let's stop looking over our kids and middle schoolers and high schoolers. Sometimes they get things because of their level of study and the way that they're committed. We've got kids in this church family that have consistently been in the Word of God for over 300 days straight. They're training, they're disciplined. And what I'm trying to say is just like what, what uh, Paul said to Timothy. Man, they're an example. Some of these kids are an example of the faith to all of us. 
And it's the same way. As Jesus was learning, he learned the old covenant. But I want you to think about this. He was the middle ground because he as God's son was here to usher in, be the change agent for the new covenant. Let me say it this way. Christianity grew out of Judaism. Some of you, the connection is because we have a connection with the Jewish people, their beliefs, and their nation. There is a reason why historically America has been connected to and been aligned with the nation of Israel because we are the ones, the Gentiles, we have been grafted in to that spiritual group of people. Jesus was a teacher of the Jewish law and as I already mentioned, the Jewish Torah. Jesus taught. He was referred to as a rabbi. Now, we don't know how long he proclaimed the teaching of the kingdom of God on the mountainside. These three chapters could easily be spoken in under 30 minutes. So if you stand up, if I had one of you stand up and read chapter 5, 6, and 7, we could easily just do a discourse and go through it in like 30 minutes. But I get the impression, because of the setting, the travel, and the attentiveness of the disciples, that possibly what we have in Matthew's record, and I want you to think about this, that possibly what we have in Matthew's record is more of an overview or a highlight of the teachings of Jesus. Not that every single word was recorded, but that that there was a highlight recording or an overview recording of the principles and the truth of what Jesus said. Everything in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I believe. But I don't think that that's all of what he said during that period of time. Think of it like this. If you've ever been to a third world country, now we drove here this morning. Some of you have a longer commute um, than others. But some of you, where you drove from, how long would it take you to walk? More than 10 minutes? More than 45 What I have seen in third world countries is when somebody is committed to Christ, there are people that literally walk two to three hours to come to a service and to fellowship with brothers and sisters. See, we don't think in those terms. So in my mind, this huge crowd of people were coming, we already read where they're coming from. They're coming from all over and they're all different ages. I'm telling you what right now, if I walk two to three hours to come to a service, and you sing two songs, and you give me 15 minutes, and you say we're done? And now I'm going to walk back the same distance? See, I just, that just doesn't jive with me. I see, and I want you to think about this Sermon on the Mount being like his disciples are right there. He's in, on an elevated mountainside. There's all these huge multitude, this huge crowd of people, and I actually believe that there's a lot of things that he talked about and shared, the the fill-in-the-blank conversation, and it wouldn't surprise me if it was more of a responsive question-and-answer dialogue. Are you you tracking what I'm saying? That makes more sense to me, where they hung out for hours on end. Now, let me just remind you in John, um, what I'm saying in John chapter 21 and verse 25, I'll read it for you. John said this, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. The miracles, the healings that we read about in the New Testament, please let me challenge your thinking today. 
That's just a glimpse of what he did. We don't even know the scope of all the miraculous things, the touches of life that were changed because of Jesus. So in the same way, like there's people that say, well, they're trying to explain away because if you're reading Luke, that Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount in the plain. Well, me personally, I don't believe that this is the only time that Jesus ever proclaimed these kingdom principles. I believe he proclaimed these kingdom principles in multiple times, multiple places, multiple situations. I don't have any problems. Some of you are like, well, it just shows that the New Testament is not accurate. You can't believe it. That's like us experiencing the same thing. Some of you are going to walk out here this morning and say, this is what Pastor Tim said. Can you believe he said that? Oh, my word. He's offensive. Some of you are going to walk out and say, did you hear what Pastor Tim said? That was so encouraging. You're going to be blessed. Some of you are going to walk outside and go, that dude's off his rocker. Why do we let him lead us? Do you see what I'm saying? There's different aspects and different perspectives based on where you're coming from and how you're receiving the information. I can take this same thing that I'm teaching right now and I can meet in a small group and we can have a conversation and some of you will take the teaching and the truth of the word of God in a totally different context because we're in a small group. Does that make one right, one wrong? Does that mean that they're in conflict with each other? Absolutely not. But I want you to think about these things and this is what I want to leave you with. The details are more difficult The details are the hard work. You don't get the details by just doing a summation reading, just reading through. You have to dig. You have to get the background. You have to get the culture, the setting. Because when you understand the context of what's going on and what's being said, it changes how you view things. So let me leave leave you with this comparison. What's the difference between average and excellent? We could give a whole list of things, but I'm going to keep it real simple. Details. Average? Eh, yeah, it's, yeah, we're good. Excellence? Mm-mm. Excellence is about detail. Excellence is about not, excellence is about not taking something for granted and filling in the blanks. And this is what I'm saying to us this morning. Brothers and sisters, God has amazing things that he wants to reveal to us. The scripture makes it very clear when you read and study that he wants for every single one of us this excellent, abundant, vivacious, incredible, spirit-filled existence. How are you doing with that? I'm not trying to get us just to attend church. I'm trying to get us to be his followers, his disciples, his little representations in this lost world. The difference between the details that we're talking about and our study of the word of God is an excellent life versus just an average life. And can I just tell you right now, and I'm going to say this point blank, you're going to be going upstream because in our current culture, average is what we play to within the church. We play to average. Well, you can be upset at me. I'm not playing for average. I'm trying to grow and learn, and I'm trying to be the man that God wants me to be, and I'm more committed to seeking him and knowing him and praying and seeking his face and calling upon his name and living with desperate dependence than I ever have been. Because I want to understand the excellency of his glory. If you don't know Jesus, 
I'm going to encourage you to make him your Lord and Savior. And if you say you know Jesus, I'm going to ask you to get off your... And go deeper. Move in closer with him. Train. Prepare. Seek his face. You know what's amazing? Every time in scripture, every single time, he says, you draw nigh to me, you call upon my name. What does he do? He responds. The issue in my life is not God. The issue in my life is me. Whenever I commit myself to training and preparation and to excellence, guess what happens? I told somebody this week, it's like, what's been happening over the last several months? It's like I'm looking at my optics. And as I've been pressing into him more, <coughs> it's like the Holy Spirit is taking, you know, those little glass cleaners? And I'm looking, and I can see, but it's like he's been like, and I'm like, whoa, where's that been? That's awesome. That's pretty. Whoa, that's amazing. Do you know what he wants to do that for all of us? But we have to do it by faith. The way we started this whole conversation, 613, add on chapters 5, 6, and 7, at some point we should get it like, I can't do that. Yep. Here's God. That's why he sent his son. And that is why we're going to have a fabulous celebration next Sunday morning because we're going to talk about what separates him from every other rabbi, teacher, Pharisee, Sadducee, sage, diviner, uh, uh, witchcraft. What, what separates him? Up from the grave he arose. <sighs> the resurrection. I love you. Focus on learning more. Press in, prepare and train. Allow God to be an even greater influence in your life. You will not be sorry.